Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast. Shut the fuck up. We are not done talking yet. I'm Sharla. And I'm Danielle. Together, we will be discussing current events, pop culture, writing, books, movies, and women's lives. We are smart, funny, and occasionally profane. Thanks for listening. See you on the other side. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shut the Fuck Up. We're not done talking yet. Hey, Danielle. Hi, Sharla. Today, we are going to talk about a topic that has been in the news that has really been upsetting us, and it is the refugee situation, specifically how the U.S. is not accepting as many refugees as they should or could, and how there's a cap being put on refugees that doesn't even come close to dealing with the problem. So to address this topic, we have an expert who happens to be my good friend, Barbara Strack. Hi, Barb. Hi there. Hi, Barb. Barbara is joining us today from Washington, D.C., where she has been working in the past with the refugees into the United States. So she's an expert. She has recently retired from the administration. And now she's actually in a position to speak out about the situation. So thanks for joining us today, Barbara. It's really my pleasure. Um, I am always um, happy to talk about um, refugees and the US Refugee Resettlement Program and the role that we've traditionally played in leadership in the world. So um, thanks so much for inviting me to join you. Well, we're really glad to have you here. Um, this, it seems like one of those topics that people are aware of, but maybe not really understanding sort of the history and how we got where we are. So why don't you start and just tell us um, about your experience, the job that you last held in the administration, all that good stuff. Sure. Um, why don't I start with a little bit of sort of Refugees 101, just to kind of ground the conversation. Because um, even though we use the term refugee, you know, colloquially, and I think most people have a general understanding of it, there's, there's actually kind of a technical explanation. So a refugee is a person who has crossed a border, has left his or her country of, um, of origin, um, and who has faced past persecution or has a well-founded fear of future persecution um, on account of what they call what we call the five protected characteristics. So it's um, race, religion, nationality, um, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. Um, that last bit, social group, can be really quite flexible. It could be you're a trade union activist. It could be you're LGBTQ, it could be you're a battered woman. Um, so there's a lot of different categories that can fall under that particular social group part of it. Um, but I think one of the things, a place where the, the sort of the technical definition and the kind of commonplace understanding um, can vary in terms of, it's like who's left out under that refugee mm -hmm. definition. So for example, someone who is fleeing generalized violence of war 
but is not being personally um, persecuted based on one of those five grounds is not technically a refugee. Now, in this day and age, a lot of wars have an ethnic, religious, some other kind of component to it. So people fleeing war may meet the refugee definition, but they don't necessarily meet the technical definition. Um, the other thing it leaves out, sometimes we talk about natural disasters and say the people who have fled are refugees. Technically, that's not the refugee definition, so that's not what I'm talking about here. And then the other part that's a much newer, um, I think, aspect of this is, of course, climate change refugees. And the legal framework does not recognize climate change refugees because the excuse me, the current framework goes back to the wake of the Second World War. And so really what was happening was people looked at it as kind of both a geographic issue and a, and a time-limited issue. It was like, oh my goodness, there are all these refugees who are in Europe once the war has already ended, and what's going to happen to them? And some of them can go home and some of them can't go home. And so that's really where the Refugee Convention was written against that backdrop of Europe, and I would say in retrospect, a kind of optimistic notion that like, oh, this is a problem we're gonna solve now in the, work of the, second, in the wake of the Second World War, not recognizing that unfortunately, uh, refugee problems seem to be perennial uh, and are in every continent and exist over time. Um, so the law is, not, is, is, um, is important and powerful and has a lot of strength to it, but it also doesn't address every humanitarian need of every person um, who is in transit um, at this time. And there's also even a weird little American footnote that US law has kind of a, an extra little provision that we sometimes recognize people as refugees, even if they haven't crossed an international border, um, even though that's typically an intrinsic part of the definition. So for example, certain Iraqis who um, worked with the US military or US um, civilians in Iraq uh, and may be at risk by virtue of that perceived association with the West, even if they haven't crossed a border, the United States may recognize some of them as refugees and consider them as candidates for resettlement. Um, so I know that's a long-winded kind of technical definition. The other thing I was going to point out is that people often conflate refugees and asylum seekers. Right. So the folks, for example, who either are at the U.S. southern border right now, um, technically those are asylum seekers as opposed to refugees. You know, sometimes someone who already arrives in the country and asks for asylum. Um, so... Um, and you know, in some of the images we saw some years ago with a lot of spontaneous arrivals in Europe, um, and it gave people an impression that um, that the refugee program was out of control. And in fact, those were asylum seekers. So there's there's kind of a parallel government infrastructure and set of operations and laws that deal with asylum seekers. But I dealt very specifically with the refugee program, who were people overseas, not at a U.S. border. Um, outside their country of origin for the most part, and, um, and who the U.S. both provides assistance to people in situations like that, and also for a really um, a very small minority of them are considered for resettlement to the U.S. or another resettlement country. Um, so that's my long-winded, you know, sort of lawyerly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, that, that's really helpful, because I, I definitely have confused asylum seekers 
and refugees in my own mind, especially I was reading about people at the border get asked what their reason for seeking asylum. And if they say the wrong thing around, if it's an economic reason, that that's not actually a reason you could seek asylum. But are there economic refugees? Like, is it, is it, is that ever grounds for being um, identified as a refugee? It's not under the um, the international definition or the U.S. definition. Um, so typically, we would distinguish between economic migrants and refugees or asylum seekers. But as you say, a lot of times um, people have mixed motives for traveling, sure. um, and so traditionally, uh, in both the refugee and asylum program. Um, officers who did the interview, they were trained to know the law and not really expecting the applicant to spontaneously say the magic words. And so um, there really was an effort to elicit the right information from applicants. Um, and, you know, and the first thing somebody might say is, why did you leave home? And they'd say, you know, well, I was poor and I couldn't, you know, I lost my house. Um, but if you ask questions about their characteristics and why did they lose their house or why did someone not give them a job or why did someone um, you know kick them out of their community it very often um, you can find out there are underlying persecution that it's not an accident that that particular person was you know homeless and poor and felt he or she needed to flee so um, I, I do think the system I mean I'm not an expert in the asylum program in general, and I've now been out of government for two years, but it does seem to me what's happening at the southern border now is kind of turning the system on its head in that I've read that officers aren't even allowed to ask those really detailed questions that might elicit um, testimony that would support um, an asylum claim. If, if they don't spontaneously say certain things on their own, then, um, you know, then dramatic consequences attached to that, that they can be sent back to Mexico or back to Central America or, you know, forced to wait a long time outside the U.S. Yeah, that is terrifying. So I have two questions already. Um, can you tell me where the climate change refugees are coming from? You know, I really, I cannot, um, because I, I didn't work with those people, basically, because we, the, the United States, identifies refugees for resettlement against the traditional definition. And there's a UN agency called the, um, it sounds like a person, but it's an organization, the, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR, mm -hmm. um, traditionally um, identifies refugees against the traditional definition. Um, they also work with other humanitarian populations. So they'll work with there are people called internally displaced persons, IDPs, who are exactly like refugees, but they've fled, but they haven't crossed a border. So they're still inside their country of origin, but their life is very refugee-like. And so I would think um, UNHCR, I'm sure, runs into climate change refugees um, internally and externally. My guess is they are trying to provide um, assistance and um, you know, sustenance to them the same way they do with traditional refugees, but I just don't have a lot of experience with that. Okay. And then going back a few decades, um, what about the folks um, like Mikhail Baryshnikov? He defected. What is that called? Seeking asylum? You know, 
I'm not quite sure. I don't know his personal story, but I think you're right that traditionally a lot of different language was used and, um, you know, certainly defecting was one, whether he was invited, whether he came to play a concert and then said, oh, I don't want to go back. You know, I'm not quite sure what happened. I mean, it is true. The, the, the law that, um, that governs today is the Refugee Act of 1980. Mm. And before 1980, refugees came to the United States under various legal frameworks, but it kind of shifted from time to time. But there was a real um, kind of uh, emphasis in the program. People who were fleeing communism or totalitarian regimes were really privileged in the US system and people who were fleeing other perfectly, you know, who had other kinds of perfectly legitimate refugee claims the US was traditionally less interested in. So we were more interested in right. people coming from Russia and from Cuba and things like yeah. that. So the Refugee Act of 1980 actually kind of brought US law into alignment with the international definition, which um, doesn't really look at the ideology of your persecutor, it's, it's more the fact of, of your persecution. Um, but also, I took, I took a couple of looks at the statistics today just to refresh my memory. So right now, there are about 26 million refugees in the world, which is just really like quite a bad and astonishing number. It has been going up in recent years. Um, and that's only refugees proper. That's not including internally displaced persons. It's not including asylum seekers. If you add all those folks into the mix, there's something like 71 million forcibly displaced people in the world, which is just um, it's you know, almost it's, unimaginable. It's such a big number that it's unimaginable, um, really. And you know, kind of going back to how um, Sharla framed this conversation in the beginning, there were times during my government service where um, I would listen to. Um, I, I was a career civil servant, so I, I was in my former job for 12 years, and Republican administrations and Democratic administrations, and talked to lots of members of Congress and um, lots of congressional staff. And sometimes, you know, what I just sort of came down to is, you know, I'd, I'd love to introduce you to a refugee. <laughs> you know, I'd love for you to actually like meet someone and see who they are, because really refugees are us you know they are just like us and our loved ones and our families and our neighbors who they are people who like the most catastrophic thing in the world has happened to um but i think you know really the way to to think about them is they you know they are mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and they are rocket scientists and rice farmers and you know like i a civil servant and teachers and nurses and yeah you know, musicians and artists and everything you can imagine in between. Um, and so, you know, I, I think um, that ability to just connect and understand that this isn't a, um, a radically, you know, different kind of people. They're, you know, they, they really are, um, they are just like us um, is, yeah. you know, is one of sort of my, fundamental takeaways. Um, but Charlotte, you asked me and I sort of skipped over earlier, like what my, my, I'm a, my actual job was, um, I, I worked at um, the Department of Homeland Security in one of the sub agencies that's called US Citizenship and Immigration Services, um, which I used to say was like the kinder, gentler part of DHS. Um, because it's the agency that's responsible for green cards and work permits and um, uh, and asylum and refugee processing, 
Um, so um, I was the chief of the, um, the, the, um, the refugee affairs division there. And I worked very, very closely with colleagues in the State Department um, uh, to um, help administer the, the resettlement program. Um, so the State Department takes the overall lead worldwide in both providing assistance to refugees um, the U.S. funds the, the agency I mentioned, the U.N. agency, UNHCR, it funds NGOs, it works with other governments, um, but um, traditionally resettlement complemented those efforts. And um, the, the, the stats that I always used to use were um, that the United States traditionally was, um, was a tremendous leader in both refugee assistance and refugee resettlement. So overall only about traditionally only about one percent of all the refugees in the world would get resettled to any resettlement country and the u.s would take half of one percent wow. and the rest of the world put together took the other half a percent um and so we were really you know the the big dog in this arena um the other big resettlement countries are the the biggest the big three are traditionally the u.s and canada and australia um, and then other countries participated at smaller right. rates. Well, look at the, look how many Germany took um, of Syrian refugees. Wasn't that just unprecedented, a million? It, was that a million people? Um, you know, I looked up, there's this, today they have just over, um, I saw data that said there are 1.1 million refugees living in Germany. So it's probably not all Syrians, but they did step up tremendously. Yeah. Um, during this a couple of years ago at the height yeah. of, of the Syrian crisis. And it's interesting because while Canada, Australia, and the US are traditional immigration countries, you know, across the board, um, we have um, kind of generous and, and robust immigration policies for family and employment and humanitarian. Germany is not a traditional resettlement, uh, not a traditional immigration country. So it was really, um, you know, I think a major stretch for them in terms of policy to, um, to recognize the crisis that Syrian refugees were facing. Um, there, there are over um, 6 million Syrian refugees today outside Syria. And, you know, and I don't even know how many internally displaced people. Um, and one of the phenomenon around refugees are they often, and typically when they flee across a border, you know, some people go further, but a lot of people stop in that first neighboring country. And a lot of times those first line neighbors um, are not necessarily rich countries, um, mm -hmm. depending on, you know, what part of the world we're talking about. And um, also depending on the nature of the refugee flow, it's not just the number of people arriving in desperate straits, but there can be um, religious differences and cultural differences so that it's a lot of stress on those neighboring countries to um, to be hosts for refugees for the first line as countries of countries of first asylum and you know traditionally that was one of the roles that the United States played was um, folks used to call it burden sharing and then the the language um, I think got a little more um, uh, progressive and so it's it's responsibility sharing and so it's essentially the United States, you know, at the time was saying to, to Jordan and to Lebanon and Egypt and Turkey and recognizing that they had this tremendous 
um, burden um, or, you know, dealing with a huge influx of, you know, first they had waves of Iraqi, well, a lot of them were still having waves of Palestinian refugees, um, and then they had waves of Iraqi refugees, and then they had waves of Syrian refugees. And so the U.S. was contributing financially, but um, through resettlement, it can be quite, um, quite selective. And so resettlement typically um, ident was identified for refugees who, who, weren't, um, who weren't safe or stable, even in that country of first asylum. So it could be um, people with medical issues that are hard to deal with locally. It could be um, a woman-headed household um, with children in a culture where women-headed households you know, have a particularly hard time. It could be LGBTQ individuals who are still subject to persecution in that country or first asylum. And so the U.S. resettlement program was um, a, a safety valve of sorts. So even though numerically, we, even at the high point, we were not um, helping as many refugees as those first-line states, um, but we were you know, making a meaningful contribution and, um, and contributing funds at the same time. Um, so at the high point, the, the last, I'd say, three years of the Obama administration, um, they really made a big commitment to refugee resettlement. And the president gets to set the number every year. That's the target. So um, in the next to last year, I have to look at my, my numbers. The, um, the Obama administration, we had resettled 70,000 refugees. And the number had been flat for three years running. And for me, as a government uh, manager, and my State Department colleagues, we treated that ceiling as a goal. And so we tried to get as close as humanly possible to 70,000. And there were years we got within like five or 12 people, which if you think about, is really hard to do. You know, it's, uh, human beings get sick and they miss airplanes. And um, so it's a, hard, um, it's a hard goal. And then we had thought at the career level that the program was going to expand, but kind of gradually kind of stair-step. So we thought the program would go from 70,000 to 75. And the Obama administration wanted to do more. And they basically said, well, you know, let's go to 85. So it was going from 70,000 to 85,000 in a single year, which, um, you know, I think for a lot of us who worked in this field philosophically was exactly where we wanted the program to go. And we knew the humanitarian need was out there. But operationally, it's hard to do that much additional work um, that quickly. Um, but they made sure we had the resources. And then on top of that, for his last year in office, President Obama got to set the, um, the ceiling because it starts on October 1. So it was the end of his administration. And he went from 85,000 to 110,000, um, which is, was a modern um, high point. It doesn't meet the high point of like back in the day of the Vietnamese program. Um, so when President Trump came into office, we had had um, basically one quarter of the fiscal year where we were on track to admit 110,000 refugees. And of course, um, his first week in office, he came out with an executive order that um, dramatically cut refugee admissions and for the rest of the year, there was just litigation and new executive orders and um, the, pr can the program I say was Because he's a motherfucker. But anyway, hey gals, can we take a little break? Um, and we'll be right back with Barbara.
Okay, and we're back. Well, Barbara, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the process the United States uses to screen refugees before they get on the list that would allow them to be resettled in the United States. Sure. Um, the refugee program has the most vigorous um, screening process of any category of traveler to the United States, whether people are coming for their green card or for business or students or tourists or anything else. Um, and it really was one of the big things that my staff and I focused on um, over the, the 12 years that I was in government. So I started in 2005, and it really was when larger scale Iraqi processing started in 2007. Um, we, at that point, we had a framework that had been developed after the, um, September 11. And the, the existing vetting was like state of the art in, in September 11, 2001. Um, but all of the law enforcement and national security agencies have gotten like smarter and better and they collect more information and they can analyze the information and their capacity to bounce data against um, you know, other data sets and get meaningful results. Like all of that is constantly um, getting better. And so we really had great relationships both within DHS, you know, which is Department of Homeland Security. There are a lot of national security folks there and fraud detection and screening, um, and then working with other parts of government. So we worked really closely with the Department of Defense, um, the National Counterterrorism Center, you know, FBI, CIA. Um, we worked with them and it wasn't, it, it was very cooperative because our position from the refugee program was, we know there's this overwhelming humanitarian need for refugees and for resettlement. We don't want to see our program subverted, um, you know, by bad guys, certainly not even, you know, merely um, fraudulent cases. We want to weed those out, but we sure don't want our program to be used as an avenue for, you know, for bad actors to come to the United States and, you know, worst of all, do harm in the United States, but undermine um, trust and confidence in the program going forward for all the people who could be served. So um, a lot of the work was done through the, um, the auspices of the National Security Council staff who would convene and bring everyone together. Um, and there were times, for example, during the Obama years when they wanted to see larger numbers of um, Iraqis screened and they'd bring together the vetting agencies and if cases weren't moving quickly, their response was to give more resources to the vetting agency. It was never to cut corners. It was just sort of like, what do you need? What do we, can we do to make this happen you know, with integrity? Um, and that was true in, in Republican and Democratic administrations. Um, the, the George W. Bush administration was very supportive of refugee resettlement. Um, and I was actually remembering the other day, I mean, Laura Bush as first lady actually hosted a reception in the White House Rose Garden um, for World Refugee Day. And she invited refugees and some of the, the nonprofits that work with refugees and some of us. And you know, just to think how, how times have changed in you know, just such a short um, period of time um, that that's you know, not the case anymore. So um, we were always um, looking for 
um, the latest vetting that we could do. And the same thing was true when we started working with more Syrian applicants, um, because we did recognize in certain populations that while there are lots of real refugees, um, there was the possibility for you know, some bad actor to try to infiltrate the program. Um, and so we were always looking at ways to safeguard um, against that. Um, and I think because of the relative size of the program, that even at a, a level of 85,000, when it comes to US immigration, that's a small program. And we're operating overseas and um, we're, we had some time to run the program. So for the, for the guys, you know, TSA agents who are at the airport and dealing with millions of people arriving every day right there, you need to make a decision in like, you know, 20 seconds or something like that we had the luxury in the refugee program that we really were making decisions kind of upstream from that. And so we were able to work with these other agencies um, to make you know, really good decisions. And we, we were the guinea pig essentially for some new technologies and new programs. Um, we would do it on a, um, you know, we're legal authorities permitting, we would start it overseas and do it for a while and see are we getting useful information that um, helps with our adjudications, that's not redundant of some other source. And if it was, then we could institutionalize it. And, um, and then a lot of times other programs started using um, processes that we, we, um, we tested through the refugee admissions program. Well, you know, I love hearing about this because, you know, my impression is that when Trump came into office, he immediately disparaged any kind of vetting that had been done. He kind of implied that vetting hadn't been done and that was provided sort of an excuse for whether it was asylum seekers or refugees or whatever, just to do sort of a full stop at bringing people into the United States. I think you're right. And it started, you can trace the rhetoric, you know, back to the Trump campaign and even earlier than that. Um, it's been reported a couple times now. I mean, I can say I was in a meeting um, towards the end of the Obama administration. We were actually briefing the Senate on the new refugee admission numbers. And um, Senator Sessions said to a senior white, uh, a senior State Department official, we are a Christian nation. And his point was that we should be bringing Christian refugees, um, not people of other nationalities. Um, and you know that was appalling in the moment. It was it was appalling that probably in that room, which it wasn't a, it wasn't a public hearing. It was a, a meeting. You know, the the notion that um, um, you know, Jews and um, Buddhists Muslims. and Hindus and Muslims and atheists are like, you know, not as good Americans is, is so fundamental to me about what this country is and what the constitution means. It was appalling, but you know, that's clearly the philosophy that he brought um, into the justice department when he became the attorney general. So I mean, one of the things I sort of remind people about now is a, a lot more of Trump's rhetoric focuses on illegal immigration, um, but I, I think he's shown by word and deed, he's really anti-immigration in general. He wants lower levels of legal immigration, whether that's refugees or families that he disparages as chain migration or all kinds of other things. Um, you know, and he wants to change the composition and he wants it to be more white and um, European and richer. So, you know, I think in a, nut, a, a nutshell, um, you know, when 
he's quoted as saying he wants fewer people from shithole countries and more Norwegians. Um, that is playing out across the legal immigration system writ large. I mean, those are the articulated policy goals. Such as they are. I mean, I guess you can call it a policy, um, not a very well thought out one and a very impulsive one. That's designed, I think, to appeal to Trump's supporters. It is. You know, the other part that um, kind of breaks my heart about this is, um, you know, the, the humanitarian part is, is, is hard when I've had the chance to travel and see refugee camps or see how refugees live in cities. And, you know, they're incredibly resilient and entrepreneurial. Um, but, you know, it's a very, very hard way to live. But it's also, um, even if you don't buy into that humanitarian agenda, it's incredibly short-sighted for American foreign policy and for our national security goals. Um, because the fact that the U.S. engaged bilaterally with countries gave U.S. diplomats and, and, um, and the Department of Defense um, leverage to um, talk about things the United States wants from other governments, which are not limited to the humanitarian sphere. So, you know, you can imagine some of the, the frontline countries around Iraq and Syria, they know, they have information on who crosses their borders. Um, you know, we would like them to share that with us. And when you're engaging with those governments and saying, okay, look, you know, we'll do some refugee resettlement, you know, can, can my military guys or my law enforcement guys talk to your law enforcement guys and maybe we can have some information sharing? You know, that's something that goes to U.S. foreign policy and to U.S. national security. And I think in particular, um, the rhetoric equating Muslims with terrorists, um, you know, is not, uh, you know, that's a, that's a recruiting opportunity, um, you know, for, for ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Um, that the United States is demonizing Muslims is um, is, is a recruiting tool. What they do, and I don't want to say I'm, it's me because it's not me. It's what they do, and they're racist, and they're sucking, and they they spread it all over. It's been going on for twenty years. The you know nine eleven, and you know blah blah blah, Iraq, Iraq. Yeah, it's really I, disturbing that yeah. people who want to come to the United States are demonized, like there's something wrong with them. Yeah. So, you know, I think even if people say tough luck to refugees from a humanitarian perspective, I think that's really short-sighted and, and missing U.S. foreign policy and U.S. national security interests by being engaged in um, in places in the world that are hotspots and that are chaotic. Um, it It really is an important foreign policy tool that um, we've just surrendered. You know, Barbara, I wanted to ask you about um, an article that you wrote that was published in Time Magazine. Congratulations. Thank you. And that article kind of went through and dismantled some of the, I would call them like Trump's talking points or the myths that he's spreading about the refugee situation. Could you tell us a little bit about what you covered in that article? Sure. Um, I mean, the, the, what prompted my article was um, the, the start of the new fiscal year, which is when the president sets the new ceiling. And <clears throat> excuse me, Trump had been ratcheting that number down um, 
uh, over the years. So it had gone um, to 30,000 and then he had just announced that the new number was going to be 18,000, which is, um, you know, sort of a catastrophically low number. And um, so besides the, the fact that I thought that was, you know, not a good policy decision, the rationale for it was just absolute nonsense. Um, and so that's what I tried to talk about in the article. So, you know, one of his answer, one of the arguments was, well, you know, it's good for refugees to stay close to home and we provide assistance to them there. And then, you know, when things clear up, they're going to be able to go back home again. And um, the answer that's sort of like, well, yes, but duh. I mean, that's what happens to 99% of refugees anyway, you know, only a, this tiny fraction, you know, 1% or for the US, half of 1% are considered for resettlement. So the, it, it's not either or, it's of course people are gonna shelter close to their countries of origin. And many refugees would hope to be able to go home someday. Um, the, the jargon legally is talking about durable solutions. So there's three ways to stop becoming a refugee. One is it's safe, to go home again. Um, that's voluntary. And so you voluntarily repatriate. Um, and the UN and other people will help people when that happens. Um, one is local integration. So that neighboring country that you fled to, you're able to actually live and work there indefinitely with, with rights that are sort of like a green card holder in the United States. You know, So you're, you're living um, a, a life with... Um, labor rights and mobility and your kids can, you know, have a future there and stuff like that. So that's number two. And then the third is resettlement. So um, the idea that we shouldn't do resettlement for the one half of 1% because we leave the other 90 99%, you know, near their homelands was just, you know, was just foolish. Um, so that was, you know, one of the big um, myths that I wanted to address. Um, I think the other thing that gets lost in this is the extent to which the, the United States runs the show on resettlement. I mean, we choose the refugees who come to the United States. They don't really get an opportunity to, to choose resettlement or choose which resettlement country. So um, the fact that this was you know, a, um, a, a US um, sponsored program, that we really have the control, that we do the vetting. Um, and that's, you know, I think what he was not telling the truth about. Um, another big part of it is just the, um, I had help with the article. There's, um, there are domestic NGOs who have contracts with the State Department uh, and they have affiliates around the country. So resettlement is really this public-private partnership. Um, a lot of the organizations are faith-based. There's um, uh, Catholics and Jews and a lot of the Protestant um, groups. So one of the kind of umbrella Protestant groups is called Church World Service. And I've been consulting with them um, a bit since I um, since I retired, and I'm really um, flattered they asked me to be on an advisory committee with them. So um, they have affiliates all over the country, as does Hyas, as does um, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Um, one of the non-faith-based organizations is International Rescue Committee, which again has roots after the Second World War. Albert Einstein. Um, and these, um, these organizations know how to welcome refugees. They're in communities. They have partnerships in communities um, uh, with, uh, so when, when a refugee arrives, they literally meet them at the plane. They take them to their first apartment, which will have bare bones furnishings. 
Um, they'll help them get their social security card, enroll their kid in school, um, help them, you know, try to find their first job, where are the English classes. And so, um, you know, I think it's just, it's a lie that resettlement doesn't work. Um, and refugees have been coming to the United States and being successful and contributing much more, um, the studies show in terms of like taxes than you know, any benefits they receive. Um, so it was, um, the article was an opportunity for me to just call bullshit. Well, it was very gratifying to read that. Um, it was sort of horrifying though, because in that article you described how many people are actually, I guess, on the list for resettlement who are who could come to the United States. Yeah, there are, there are already more people. We used to say in the pipeline and who had had their interview with my former colleagues at USCIS then could be admitted for the whole rest of the fiscal year under the, the numbers. So it's a, um, it's this presidentially um, dictated backlog, um, basically with people, you know, in, in limbo. And, and again, it really varies. I mean, I had the chance to travel a fair amount in my job and there are some of the refugees the US would target um, for resettlement were in what were called protracted situations. And, and literally people could be in refugee camps for three generations. Mm -hmm. um, and there's just a political impasse. Their own countries wouldn't let them back. The country they were in, um, you know, wouldn't give them, you know, rights of mobility and labor and things like that. And at a certain point, the UN Refugee Agency and the United States said enough is enough. You know, three, three generations is enough. So we're resettling out of camps in Africa, um, Burmese out of camps in Thailand, um, Bhutanese out of camps in Nepal. And the power of the US program used to be that when the US got involved with a particular population, we very often attracted other resettlement countries to the table as well. So we might be doing the lion's share of the work, but um, other nationalities would come. And even literally the infrastructure that the US State Department paid to be built in these kind of forward deployed locations, if there was a break in the time that the US was there, it's like the Canadians could you know, um, use those offices um, and stay in those um, guest houses and things like that. So it was both um, kind of rhetorical leadership and thought leadership and diplomatic leadership, and then these really practical operational things too. That is, you know, that's really a sad state of affairs to that, that kind of leadership has been abandoned by Trump and his administration, because it really shows how other countries are kind of left with us not being in the lead. And who's gonna, so. who's gonna pick up the slack? You know, it's a little bit like getting out of the climate change accords. It's like the United States should be the leader in that, but they're not anymore, or we're not. Well, um, do you have any other questions you want to ask, Danielle? Because um, I had a one final one. Okay, I'll just ask this. Um, do you know how many, Barbara, do you know how many immigrants go to Canada each year? Sorry, refugees, sorry. You know, I don't know um, anymore. I, my understanding is, I think, that, I think the Trudeau administration had upped the numbers somewhat. Um, they were traditionally the 
the number two country after the United States, and I think they are now the world leader, but I'm not quite sure what the number is in, in the last few years. Yeah, I was there, I've been to Toronto the last two summers, and the neighborhoods, even nearby where I was staying, they have an entire cafe with Afghani refugees, but I guess they have a political status now. The, their cafe is run by them, they serve everything, and it's a nonprofit. They keep all the money. Like, you people are doing it right. Also, it's a much smaller country. They have 30 million people in the whole darn thing, and we have 40 million in California. So I realize that it's in some ways not comparable, but. Yeah, the other thing I should have mentioned, in addition to Canada, Australia, um, and the US, other traditional resettlement countries have been the Nordic countries. And numerically those are smaller programs but if you actually look at it through the lens that you just mentioned of you know refugee um as a percentage of population um the nordics are more generous um than the big countries like the us and canada and australia that uh, and they also showed a lot of leadership traditionally um at the at the un refugee agency um and elsewhere um you know, I've also had the chance to travel a little bit. I've, I've traveled more overseas, but a little bit domestically. It's also um, incredibly um, touching and heartwarming to talk to resettled refugees. And a lot of the, kind of what you were alluding to there, I mean, there for many people, there's this, there's a, there's a great entrepreneurial spirit. Um, there's a lot of agency amongst um, refugees. Um, but also a lot of this notion of like, they want to pay it forward in some way. Um, and so I meet refugees, I meet, you know, Bosnian refugees who are working with, um, you know, Burmese and Iraqis because that's, you know, successive waves of, um, of refugees. Um, the people who are kind of the elders now in the refugee world are Vietnamese and people who cut their teeth working with, you know, Vietnamese populations. Uh, and if they're not always working with other refugees, there's a lot. There are a lot of school teachers. Um, there are a lot of people working in these social service agencies. There are a lot of kids who grow up and enlist in the military. Um, there, there's an incredible amount of um, patriotism and gratitude um, in in refugee families. And um, I, I was there was one um, there was one little boy that when the U.S. started doing resettlement um, in Thailand. It was along the, the western border of Thailand um, and there were camps uh, where there were long-staying um, Burmese refugees, so Burmese ethnic minorities who'd basically been forced out. And I was there for the, the last day. It was the first trip to that population, to that camp, but it was the last day and there was a family, um, young mom and dad and, and maybe like a five-year-old son and, they had, and a newborn baby. So they'd missed their first interview because we always do in-person interviews with the family because of the baby, but they were there and coming for a makeup interview on the last day. And this little kid was the five-year-old was one of these kids who just um, had a lot of charisma and, um, you know, was practicing a couple of English words that he had learned and um, was just really a little charmer. And, um, you know, I think all of us could look at him and think like, you know, that kid's going to come to the United States um he had kind of an unusual name it's like he's going to get an american nickname and he's going to be you know the president of his sixth grade class mark my words um and um you know that's that's the experience that like you know i've seen and um 
firsthand and, and heard about, you know, second and third hand so many times. Um, and, you know, I think we found that, you know, really like American communities um, are enriched by refugees and they open their hearts to refugees. And um, so to go through this, this low period where um, not only are the, the numbers of people being helped low, but that there's this, you know, really ugly rhetoric around refugees is, you know, I'm hoping it's an aberration and something that, um, that there's going to be the ability to rebound um, after this administration. Well, this kind of leads me to my last question, which will actually have two. One was just this um, news item that I read about the governor of Texas made the announcement that Texas was going to stop accepting refugees. And I was wondering, what on earth does that mean? So ordinarily, um, the consortium of, the, of, of, of nonprofits, the non-governmental organizations that have contracts with the State Department, um, actually decide where refugees, individual refugee families are placed. It's a fascinating thing. It's almost like a, like a sports draft. They get together and they would have a list of like, here are the, you know, however many refugee families who have, you know, met all the steps. They're ready to get on an airplane. They're going to go somewhere. And those NGOs figure out where they should be located. So, for example, if you have a close family member who's already in the United States, they're going to say, you know, the, the best outcome for you is going to be go be near your family. Um, so they'll put you in, you know, in Boise or in, um, you know, Orlando. Um, but then some refugees come who don't already have any ties to the United States, and those will be dispersed across the country. And traditionally, Texas has been um, a big location for refugee resettlement. Um, they look at some things like employment rates and housing costs and things like that to try to put people in a place where they'll be successful. So, um, and traditionally, the NGOs are responsible for talking to state and local governments. Um, but it's not permission, it's, it's coordination and um, communication around it. So what the Trump administration did um, for the first time was to come out with an order that kind of turned that on its head and said that governors and the heads of local governments um, could veto refugees being placed in their communities um, if they wanted to. And I think partly it was spurred um, back in the Obama administration, um, about a dozen or so Republican governors uh, put out a statement saying, we don't want any um, Syrian refugees, thank you, which was not legally binding in any way. Um, and so Trump basically was sort of trying to take what had been this, um, this spontaneous anti-Syrian refugee program and, and give some legal um, uh, backbone to it. Um, Initially, it seemed to be sort of backfiring, I would say, on the administration in that a lot of the Republican governors, um, again, I think it was a dozen or so, were saying yes to resettlement, um, which I give a lot of credit to the grassroots folks who organized on that. There were, there were NGOs, there were faith leaders, there were business leaders, 
employers love refugees. They're great employees. <laughs> um, and so there was a lot of lobbying and a lot of the Republican governors, one after another after another, were all saying, yes, thank you. Um, we will still have refugees come here. So Governor Abbott in Texas was really the outlier um, in saying no, but it's a big state and there are a lot of refugees there. So there was some concern about it. But at the same time, a number, um, I think it was three of the, the NGOs banded together uh, in a lawsuit saying that, um, that it was illegal for the Trump administration to give governors this veto authority. Um, one of the, the folks was the, the organization that I've been um, on the advisory committee for, Church World Service. And, um, and sure enough, just about, I think within the week, um, a, a federal judge said it was illegal. Uh, and enjoined the process. And so that means it reverts to the traditional approach that the federal government decides on the best placement of refugees um, and that government uh, governors don't have this veto authority. Um, the other weird thing about the whole notion is that um, refugees, once they are in the United States, are, have freedom to travel freedom to move just like anybody else so for example if your close family member was in texas and the governor said no you can't come here so the resettlement agencies put you somewhere else well you could get up and move to texas anyway um right the, the, and what would be contrary from texas point of view is there there are some there is some federal funding that follows refugee placement so really to make this sort of political point he was not stopping refugees from coming. He was just making sure that any refugees who came would not have any federal dollars or federal, um, you know, wouldn't be paired with a resettlement agency who would be looking out for their successful integration. Um, so they'd be coming without someone to help them get their social security card, help them find a job, help their kids find school, you know, help them with housing. So it really was kind of a cut off your nose to spite your face kind of policy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking that it's just being spiteful. Well, I would like to ask one final question, which is what do you suggest that we and our listeners do to help the situation? And then, you know, you also mentioned some nonprofit organizations, but tell us what we should do. Um, oh gosh, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I think on a, like a lot of these things, I would say um, you can reach out to your your um, member of Congress. Um, if you if you don't live in Washington D.C. like me, you actually have um, representation in Congress, <laughs> and so you could talk to your two senators and your um, your House of Representative um, person. I have a non-voting delegate uh, in the House of Representatives. Um, and certainly, you know, make your views um, known on, on that score. Um, if you're interested in volunteering, I think it's like, it's very easy to, um, uh, to Google and, um, and find things. There's an umbrella organization called Refugee Council USA, um, and their, web, their website is um, rcusa.org. Um, they're an umbrella organization for the NGOs um, who work with refugees, and um, I, they have a lot of um, good information and good resources um, on their website. Um, you know, one of the other things you can do is just, I, I use, um, you know, uh, what is it, Charity Navigator, 
and you can go into Charity Navigator and put in refugee and organizations will, um, will pop up that um, you, know, you can see use their money you know, very well and very wisely. Um, so I don't wanna, uh, there's, there are a lot of good NGOs um, and so I don't wanna name names and um, privilege some of her others, but I, I think it's pretty easy. So I, I, you know, I think the advocacy volunteer um, work, if that um, fits your schedule and, and money, um, are, would all be good. Thank you for those suggestions. We'll put that down, the one you gave us, we'll put that on our resources also. So thank you so much for coming on our show, Barbara. So we know Barbara is not only just a cat fan because she's in our group, people who love their cats too much, <laughs> but she's also highly intelligent and uh, authority on this topic. So thank you so much for sharing a lot of information with us. And I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll see you again. We'll see what happens Right now, there are impeachment hearings happening, and we can talk about that to a bull in the face, blah, blah, blah. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to talk to you guys. As you can tell, I feel you know, so passionate about this, and um, I really appreciate the chance to, to talk to you guys about it, and then certainly to, um, to let uh, your listeners um, uh, be in on the conversation. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So, well, so important. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can get more information about it on facebook.com backslash Sharla Danielle podcast.